is here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Seven seven three eight one three eight one one eight seven seven three eight one three eight one one. All my wonderful listeners and fans out there, Jimmy Kimmel, apparently among them. But I'll get to him later. Trust me. There's a piece I've been meaning to get to the last couple of days by Hobby Zhang. You don't know Hobby Zhang. I didn't know Habi Zhang either. He's a doctoral student in political science. She holds a Master of Public Policy from Pepperdine University. And so I wanted to read something to you because it relates to what I've been saying about the racist propaganda CRTV media. CRTV. CRT media. And in the American mind part of the Claremont site, when no news is good news. So she writes, the elite American media apparatus is disturbingly similar to the Chinese propaganda machine. In China, where I grew up, news is known to the people as propaganda in its neutral, if not positive, sense. Since all news agencies are run by the state, so-called news is whatever events and opinions the propaganda department of the Central Committee the Communist Party permits or manufactures. Growing up in a household of illiterate parents, I never saw newspapers as a child. My first dose of propaganda was a 30-minute TV program, CCTV Network News, broadcast in the early evening via all local stations that I occasionally watched as relat- in relatives' homes. Sounds and images, rather than words, worked better with uneducated or indifferent masses. Since 1978, this daily news program remains a textbook success of the Soviet style of propaganda, a refined manipulation, warping concepts, language, and history, aimed at convincing the Chinese people of the benevolence of the party and the superiority of socialism. Many years later, when I read Orwell's 1984, the depiction of the two minutes, uh, the two minutes hate ritual reminded me of the 30-minute Juan Lando program, 
There is never news, but only fantasy in China. State control of mass communications is one of the most striking features of totalitarian dictatorship. Modern mass communication media under competitive conditions otherwise ought to be the essential component of large-scale democracy, as Walter Lippmann argued in his influential 1922 book, Public Opinion. The democratic citizenry needs to be properly informed to deliberate. Leaders need knowledge of the public to lead and serve. And an honest and fair journalism is the midwife. American journalism has thus been trusted and extolled as the fourth estate of government until now. I first heard this term, fourth estate, when by chance I came across a book in my hometown at the age of 16. Chatting about America has a short chapter devoted to journalism. I read in wonderment that in America, journalists were commissioned to discover facts, pursue the truth, and safeguard a public sphere, where an unfettered flow of information, ideas, and debate were permitted. As an institution that guaranteed an informed public discourse, journalism thus monitored the state on behalf of the civil society. All that is foreign to the Chinese totalitarian state, where an absolutist government tells the people what to believe via the propaganda apparatus that speaks the language of authority, not truth. Nearly 20 years later, I moved to America, only to find that the media, broad sense, does not resemble anything I read in that book. I was flabbergasted to see CNN or the New York Times unabashedly lie to the national audiences about political candidate and later President Donald Trump. The overt partisanship of CNN is widely known, yet academics consider the network to be an unbiased media outlet when political scientists study the effect of media on public opinion. I was admonished in class last fall (coughs) for challenging mainstream media falsehoods and asked to state that it was only my opinion. How do we ever establish truth in a court where authority promulgates lies? I felt as important as I always felt in China. I used to think journalists in America were like the Socratic gadflies. I am befuddled to see that media elites constitute part of the country's ruling class. That cable news for years preached the Russia collusion hoax with no basis in facts. Reminds me of Chinese communist TV propaganda. Increasingly... I, what I see resemble, what I see resemble, excuse me, increasingly I see resemblance between China and the U.S. on many fronts, especially the leftist media syndicate that has become the mouthpiece of the Democratic Party. The relationship of CNN or MSNBC to the Democratic Party is no different from the Communist Central Television, CCTV, to the Communist Party. They all feed their audiences comforting lies. What so troubles me is why the American people seem to have changed. Truth is no longer the highest value. Some of them have become more like the Chinese. His unpublished memoir about the golden age of newspapers, Peter R. Kahn, the longtime publisher of the Wall Street Journal, writes that his, quote, new colleagues at the journal were lively, irreverent, and very often negative, even cynical, unquote. While his conservative editorial page colleagues were, quote, more principled and cerebral, unquote. But his favorite colleagues were those in the advertising department who were invariably loyal, positive, and good-natured. Well, the first group strike me as modern liberals who have since ascended to the cultural and intellectual elite, dictating to the unwashed. They are guardians of the self-proclaimed philosopher king, President Obama, and his disciple, Joe Biden. The second group embody virtues that ought to be the basic aspiration of the professorial rank, most of whom have become progressive activists, 
put social justice causes over academic integrity. And the last represent what I call good old Americans, such as the ones I met on Perrin Avenue in Lafayette, Indiana, or Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. I must believe that there also are many of them in other parts of the country, as I would like to find a home and a land where the people are mostly principled, decent, and charitable, in spite of its ruling class. Hubris, condescension, and callousness are not working for the media elites when so many Americans assume that officially constructed reality is a lie, while self-evident truth is labeled conspiracy. In short, most of the people now see them through the media. But how long can a nation last in this schizophrenic state? Yes, very much like the communist Chinese state media have the American media become. And I want to touch on this in a specific instance, very, very specific instance. When we return, I want to tell you about what took place and is taking place in a, in a big county, one of the biggest counties in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, Delaware County. And I want to tell you about the then U.S. Attorney in Philadelphia, how his office handled it, and the then United States Attorney's Office under Bill Barr, how his office handled it. Stay with me. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Somebody told me today that somebody on the radio said that Kyle Rittenhouse can't win any cases because calling him a white supremacist is opinion. Um, Bill Buckley won a case a long, long time ago against uh, Gore, Vidal Gore, because he called him a fascist. Now, he, he won a de minimis amount of money. But if you call somebody a white supremacist, and they have no connection to white supremacy whatsoever, and there's no effort by the individual, you know, speaking the slander, of course you can win the case. It's not opinion. Then everything's opinion. You had a host, I forget her last name, Tiffany. What is her last name on MSNBC? Cross, who called him something to the effect of a little 
murdering white supremacist. Little murder, white supremacist. That's a perfect case to bring. The bar is very high for public officials, that is, the individuals who you're suing. But it's not beyond reach. And as for Biden, as I said on Hannity last night, he was not present at the time. There is absolutely no immunity for him. All right, what's this case in Delaware County, Pennsylvania? It's a very significant case because there's video. There's actual video. The Tennessee Star explained a lawsuit alleging multiple violations of federal and state election laws. Now, some people, their eyes are rolling over, particularly in the press, particularly in corporate America, particularly Chris Christie, except when it comes to him, like a massive uh, sperm whale on the beach during, uh, remember the hurricane, Mr. Producer? Remember they caught him on the beach? You don't remember that, do you? There he was with his family. A lawsuit alleging multiple violations of federal and state election laws, as well as Pennsylvania right-to-know statute, was filed in Delaware County of Pennsylvania, according to sources familiar with the litigation. The suit was brought by plaintiffs Gregory Stenstrom, Leah Hoops, Ruth Morin. Stenstrom, a 2020 Republican poll watcher, has been outspoken in recent months regarding alleged irregularities in ballot harp canvassing in Delaware County. Defendants include election officials Marilyn Hyder and James Ziegelhofer, as well as Delaware County, the County Board of Elections, and the County Bureau of Elections. In early 2021, a whistleblower working for the Delaware County Bureau of Elections began inquiring why it was apparent to her that multiple documents pertaining to the November 3, 2020 elections were being destroyed in southeastern Pennsylvania. In that county, Delaware County, the name of the whistleblower has not yet been made public. In May, a third-party attorney filed a request via Pennsylvania's public transparency law, FOIA request, asking for election data and records for last November's elections. In particular, the request asked for return sheets, the official documents on which election results are recorded, as well as voting machine tapes showing the in-person vote totals for each precinct. According to the videos and the sources regarding the lawsuit, many such records were actually destroyed because Delaware County officials violated numerous election laws and needed to hide evidence for their violations. The alleged destruction of records was, the sources say, done to ensure the records eventually provided actual, actually matched the election results that were reported in November 2020. Pennsylvania law requires the records be preserved for 11 months after an election, Federal law demands that such records be preserved for 22 months after election. Pennsylvania law requires the voting records to be preserved for 11 months and so forth. Records in Delaware County were also required to be preserved per a prior lawsuit in which Stentrum alleged election irregularities. One of the videos provided by the more recent lawsuit sources shows Tom Gallagher, a lawyer and election official in Delaware County, destroying elongated pieces of paper. Allegedly, the voting machine tapes election officials are required to preserve. In that recording, the whistleblower asks Gallagher off-camera why he's tearing up the documents. Gallagher replies, at this point, I don't want anyone to pick it up and think that we threw stuff away. Another election official, James Zighoffer, identified in the video as Ziggy, then says, we're going to have a little campfire going. What I don't understand, and this makes 
honesty, it makes me nervous, is why tapes were being thrown away, the whistleblower shown asking Ziggy in a second video. Ziggy began to protest that no tapes were, and the whistleblower interjected that Ziggy and other election officials were throwing away tapes, and she again asked why they did so. He replied, they're all unidentifiable. Now, after the whistleblower pointed out that all election records have to be preserved for 22 months, Ziggy said, well, let's put it this way. Yes, there are tapes that are being tossed, but they are of no audit value. One source involved in the litigation said that by no audit value, he means the numbers contained on the tapes will not match election results publicized last autumn. That video goes on display, on to display still, shots of voting machine tapes in a garbage bin, a box labeled miscellaneous scanner tapes not attached to return sheets, November 3, 2020, a return sheet with a handwritten note reading 11-14-2020, more than 300 blank ballots reserved, excuse me, received, and ballot return envelopes torn up inside a garbage bin. A final still shot shows a handwritten note stating, quote, there's a, disp- there's a discrepancy in total ballots received because ballot box and return sheets indicate 300 received but 330 blank ballots returned, 11-14-2020. A third recording captures a conversation between County Voting Machine Warehouse Supervisor and Jim Savage and Director of Election Operations James Allen's about deposing of, quote, pads and second scanners, unquote. After Allen mentions those materials, Savage replies, we can't talk about it anymore. When Allen asks him why, Savage says it's a felony. This is all on video. A fourth video shows Gallagher speaking to the whistleblower off camera saying that another county official handed him a box of election records and told him it was missing V-drives from at least the communities of Chester, Haverford, and Falcroft. V-drives electronically contain information tabulated by the voting machines. The whistleblower inquired of Gallagher why those V-drives are missing, and Gallagher responds, I have no idea. That's the story, that's the summary in the Tennessee Star by Bradley Vasoli. Now, I have additional information to add to this. Additional information to add to this that's not in the story when we return. It's true that Mark Levin is the fastest-growing radio show in America. The Mark Levin Show is on at 877-381-3811. I still have information on this that is more important than what I've just told you. More important than what I just told you. Back in November... In November of uh, 20... Hold on a sec. Let me make sure I have it right. November of 2020, shortly after the election, I was sent an email. It was forwarded to me. And I read it to you on the air. Related to Delaware County. Luckily, we have the videos, like in Kenosha and so forth, because otherwise this would be poo-pooed, but I think things like this were taking place all over the country. Subject, urgent, 
Delaware County Bureau of Elections, missing precinct data, action required from judges of election. And this was sent on November 12, 2020, at 10.59 p.m. to all Delaware County poll workers. All Delaware County poll workers. Dear Delaware County poll worker, from Christina Iacono. Thank you very much for your service on Election Day. We know that it was a long day and that things may have been missing during the closing procedures at the end of the night. Unfortunately, due to missing data, election results from your precinct cannot be confirmed and approved for final tabulation until the missing data is reconciled. In order to ensure that all votes cast will be counted, We need at least one member of your election team to come to the machine warehouse ASAP to help complete forms. If you were the minority inspector and were provided an envelope at the close of the polls, please bring the envelope with you to ensure the county has as much data as possible to correct issues in the precinct. The missing data may be any of the following. Bullet. Missing yellow numbered list of voters. Bullet. Incorrect numbers in the yellow book. Numbers... They do not match the scanner tabulation. Bullet. Missing ballot reconciliation forms. This impacts the ballot chain of custody. Bullet. Missing information on the close of night return sheets. Bullet. Missing return sheet. Sounds like they were missing an awful lot, Mr. Producer. The machine warehouse is located at 403 East 24th Street in Chester, Pennsylvania. will be open Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday from 8.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. We appreciate your commitment to serve the voters on Election Day and appreciate the time and effort spent helping the county in this endeavor. Kindness regards, Christina Iacono, Delaware County Poll Worker Coordinator. Delaware County is one of the biggest counties in Pennsylvania. It's right outside of Philadelphia. Now, here's the kicker. You ready? My wife, Julie, was working on the Pennsylvania constitutional litigation with several other attorneys who had volunteered for the most part. This is the litigation that involves the federal and state constitutions. Not machines, not ballots, and that sort of thing. The heavy lifting, the briefs she participated in, They went to the Supreme Court of the United States where at least two or three justices wanted to hear the cases. That aside, she was contacted by one of the top individuals, perhaps I believe one of these plaintiffs, with this information that they had a significant problem here in one of the biggest counties in Pennsylvania. And they asked her to contact the Office of the Attorney General of the United States. And they asked her to contact the Office of the United States Attorney in Philadelphia by the name of McSwain, who now wants to be the governor of Pennsylvania. Julie forwarded this email after making a call to a top senior official who worked for Attorney General Barr. She forwarded this email after speaking to that individual on the phone. 
The purpose was, of course, to get the attention of the Department of Justice with respect to election issues in Pennsylvania. And these election issues affect, of course, the federal constitution. And this email was more than a sufficient basis to get the attention of the Department of Justice and Bill Barr. You know what happened after she sent the email, Mr. Producer? Nothing. She heard absolutely nothing back from the senior official or anybody else at the Department of Justice or the Attorney General Bill Barr's office. Nothing. Not knowing people in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Philadelphia, she contacted the U.S. Attorney's Office in Philadelphia and advised them of what had been taking place in Delaware County. The U.S. Attorney is a guy by the name of Mick Swain. Mick Swain uh, seeks to be the Republican nominee for governor of Pennsylvania. After all, he was President Trump's U.S. Attorney in Philadelphia. Has an excellent reputation. He goes on TV a lot to trash the outrageous Soros District Attorney. Good for him. So she gives the information to the U.S. Attorney's Office, McSwain's Office in Philadelphia. You know, you know what they did with it, Mr. Producer? Nothing. She never heard back. And so when Bill Barr made the pronouncement, which has been used by every left-wing journalist and critic, and Republicans like Chris Christie, I suppose, when he says not any information of fraud of any kind has been brought to the attention of the Department of Justice or his U.S. attorneys, that's not correct. That's not correct. I personally know that that's not correct. I just read you from an actual an email about the complete anarchy that was taking place in Delaware County. This lawsuit that was brought has numerous videos that have been attached. They cannot be ignored. People saying actual things. Clearly, clearly enough information. Not even close to the line. Enough information to have warranted a federal and state criminal investigation. I won't name the individual who was contacted at the Department of Justice because I don't know if that individual was the one squelching it or dropping the ball or not, so I won't do that. But if I mention the individual, you'd know who it is. And so that's the information I wanted to provide. This is not, well, they brought another lawsuit. Oh my God, will they ever stop? The question is, why didn't the Department of Justice and why didn't the U.S. Attorney's Office under McSwain do anything about it? Why didn't they conduct an investigation? Well, it wouldn't have affected the outcome of the election. First of all, when you have one murder case, it doesn't affect the statistical outcome of the number of murders you're going to have in a country every year, does it? You take one case at a time, don't you? Yes, you do. 
you don't let people off because it may not affect the ultimate outcome of an election or whatever. That has nothing to do with this. If you have election fraud or some kind of election irregularities that raise serious legal questions, you, uh, you pursue them. And you don't issue a blanket statement that you're not aware of any fraud that occurred in the election. Particularly when my wife was trying to reach, and did reach, the senior levels of the Department of Justice, one of the Attorney General staffers, and forwarded this email to her. Now maybe that, that staffer to the Attorney General sent it to the Criminal Division. Maybe that staffer sent it to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Maybe that staffer sent it to the Criminal Division. I don't know. But the staffer never got back. Silence. The U.S. Attorney's Office never got back. Silence. Nothing. Nothing. And so we have brave people now who brought this lawsuit on their own. Brave people. With videos, a whistleblower, this email, I suppose, other documentary information. The fact that information was destroyed within the 22 federally mandated month period. I'm sure there won't be any congressional investigation of anything while the Democrats control the House and the Senate. There won't be much media interest outside of Delaware County, except on this show, other shows perhaps, clearly not on TV right now. But perhaps if the Republicans take the House, they'll take a look. They'll take a look. This isn't a lie. This isn't supposition. This isn't speculation. This is a fact. This is a fact. That's what it is. And of course the question's raised. If it can happen in a huge county in Pennsylvania, did it happen in other counties in Pennsylvania? I don't know. I don't have subpoena power. I'm not a criminal investigator with the government or anything of the sort. But it's simply not true. What the Attorney General said. And it's simply outrageous that the U.S. Attorney, who now wants to be the governor of Pennsylvania, his office did nothing. Didn't even return a call. Didn't even look at it. We'll be right back. Mark Lovin. What took place in Delaware County would change the course of history is beside the point. Is that going to be fixed for the next election? And the election after that? How about the violations of the federal constitution in Pennsylvania? With the state legislature, not the state Supreme Court or the corrupt governor, or the the resigned Secretary of State or any of the rest get to make those changes. The Constitution is as clear as possible on that point. It was violated. What about some of these other states that have serious issues too? Are they going to be fixed? Why do you think 
Joe Biden was so angry calling them Jim Crow, Jim Crow, because they're trying to fix what the Democrats did. Because they won elections where the outcome is known and where they are going to win come hell or high water. I'll be right back. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-301-3811. And there's a lot to get to. I'm sorry to report to you that a sixth person has died in Waukesha. An eight-year-old. A little eight-year-old. That's six. And I saw a picture of all these individuals who've died. Now I've seen the eight-year-old. What would Joy read do with this, Mr. Producer, what would MSNBC and the racists and the bigots and the professors, they bring on more racists and bigots, what would they say about this when you have an African-American driver and all white victims who died? See, this is the danger of the Media Matters, Mediaite, these other operations. This is the danger of the American media. What Brooks has in common with the three people who Kyle Rittenhouse shot, they're all felons with long, felonious records. That's what they have in common. Victims. Victims. These are predators. And the media and the Democrat Party embrace the predators. They have no problem with the predators. They have a problem with you. You see, you're deplorable. They would never call Daryl Brooks deplorable, would they? No, they wouldn't. Or the three felons who were shot by Kyle Rittenhouse, they would never call them deplorable, now would they? Joy Reid, the other idiot Joy on The View. What is with The View? Why do people quote The View? Who cares about The View? View this, you jerks. Anyway, uh... It's like they take the stupidest birthing people they can find, put them together, stick them on a TV show, so they give everybody a headache. Pretty much. It's like everybody's worst nightmare. The idiot neighbor who never shuts the hell up, and on and on and on. Uh, But anyway. What are they saying about Brooks, Daryl Brooks? and his victims on MSNBC and CNN. Are they saying that this was a racist attack? Hmm? I'm just curious. No, they're not. No, they won't. That's why these people truly are sick in the media. They're everything I've been saying they are. And you'll notice uh, the newfound bravery of some of the others in radio and TV now. Yes, we try and 
say the right thing and do the right thing here, and apparently we lay the foundation for others to join in, and that's very important, I think. New York City. New York City lawmakers are poised to allow more than 800,000, this is New York Times, New Yorkers who are green card holders or have the legal right to work in the United States to vote in municipal elections and for local ballot initiatives. What they're trying to say there is these are non-citizens who will be able to vote in municipal elections for local ballot initiatives. Now, considering how poorly that city is run by DiCamio and the other Camios in that city, how do you think they're going to prevent these people from voting in federal elections, in state elections, Mr. Producer? They're not. They're not. This is a massive ruse. This city council is like the, it, it could be a city council in Havana. It could be the sitting council in uh, Beijing, Moscow. That's how creepy, radical extremists these fools are. The bill is known as Our City, Our Vote. Would make New York City the largest municipality in the country to allow non-citizens to vote in local elections. And as I said before... How are you going to prevent them from voting in other elections? I want you to think about this. We'll put this together. The Democrats have proposed federal legislation that would nationalize all these elections. That would allow 16 and 17 year olds to register. That would allow people to vote in precincts other than their own. That would prevent the use of voter ID so you don't have the person's identification or address. If you're mailing in a ballot, that would uh, prevent... Uh, signature comparisons. And if you vote in person, it would prevent the judge of elections or anybody else at the precinct from challenging your vote and challenging who you claim to be, even if they know you're not who you claim to be. It prevents localities and states from cleaning up their voting lists, dead people, people registered more than once, non-citizens registered, people who've moved, and on and on. Prevent you from cleaning your records. And that's just some of it. That's just some of it. So imagine having that law in place. And let me tell you a little secret. If they get a majority in the House and the Senate, I don't mean 50-50, I mean 51-49. And if they have the presidency and they have the House by one or two votes, they're going to make that law. Because we've now reached a point where we're in many respects, we're post-Constitution, as I've been talking about now for years. And we are. It's more like a one-way parliamentary system. When the Democrats are in, anything goes if they have a simple majority. When the Republicans are in, they follow the Constitution, so you need super-duper majorities, you need to respect the courts, there's separation of powers. So we have two parties playing by completely different rules. Completely different rules. And by playing completely different rules, the Republicans will destroy themselves if they don't wake the hell up fast. What took place last month in the election had nothing to do with the Republican Party in Washington or in Richmond or anywhere else. It's the people. So you get 800,000 non-citizens to vote in local elections, and then you pass that H.R. 1. And those people show up to vote in federal and state elections. It is illegal to challenge them. It is illegal as a matter of federal law 
to require a voter ID. That's what's going on. Got it? That's why these little cities and Democrat-controlled big cities, that's why they want non-citizens to vote. They're laying the foundation. You heard it here first, because I know what the hell I'm talking about. They're laying the foundation here. So these people are not going to vote in just local elections. They'll vote in all elections. Once the Democrats put in place this federal law, they've told us what they want to put in place at the federal level. They've told us. So knowing what they want to put in place at the federal level, Schumer pushing it, obviously they're talking to each other in New York City and New York with their boy in Washington. 800,000 non-citizens to vote in local elections. Okay. Then you pass H.R. 1. How are you going to stop those 800,000 from voting? How are you going to stop them? You're not. So the Democrats don't believe in every, count every vote that's legitimate, cast by a citizen. They don't even believe in voting. Power, baby. Power. By any means. You remember the ends justify the means. Well, the ends justify everything that these people claim to do and are doing. That's the truth. When we come back, Joe Biden does something that is so cynical, so pathetic, that rather than demonstrating he has a handle on things, it demonstrates, again, that not only is he a fraud, but we are in deep Shih Tzu. May I say that, Mr. Producer? That's legitimate. That's the name of a dog, right? Yes, we are. Because this guy is pathetic. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Here's Joe Biden today. Blaming everybody but himself for what he's done to this country. And it's an amazing thing. They have the House, they have the Senate, he has his executive orders, they have the Department of Justice determining what to litigate, what not to litigate. Joe Biden has basically wiped out any new drilling in this country on federal lands. The federal government controls about 30% of the land mass here, and uh, much of it has oil reserves under it. How does he think the strategic reserve got filled? It was filled to its tip-top by President Trump when the price of fuel was low, and he said he w- what he was doing. So he takes 50 million, 50 million gallons, or barrels, I guess, uh, but 50 million gallons out of the uh, strategic oil reserve. Every day the world uses 100 million gal- uh, gallons. 100 million. So as you can see, it's the drop in the bucket, but it sounds like it's so big. It's nothing, and that's not why that, that is there. It is there in case of a national emergency, basically for the military and police and so forth. Cut six, go. I also want to briefly address one myth about inflated gas prices. They're not due to environmental measures. My effort to combat climate change is not raising the price of gas. Or increasing its availability 
what is doing, it's increasing the availability of jobs. All right, now let's think for two minutes. If you're not permitting any new pipelines, if you're closing down pipelines that are being built, like the Keystone XL pipeline, if you're canceling all lease agreements for drilling on federal lands, if the industry knows that you're going to impose massive regulations and taxes on what they produce, so they're not making new investments and so forth. If you're shutting down fracking, which really was the great technological advance, you're going to create less supply. Now, we've talked about this many times. We were energy independent before Joe Biden entered the Oval Office. His administration is filled with these American Marxists. This is the degrowth movement. It is not a climate change movement. It is not an environmental movement. It is a degrowth movement. That's why we have less drilling today than we did 10 months ago. That's called degrowth. Now, so he, he wants to take and order oil out of the reserve. He's demanding that OPEC, or begging OPEC, to provide us with more fuel. Where does he think that comes from? In the atmosphere, it's not like it changes. Uh, the atmosphere, the air moves, as you well know. So, of course, these extremists have fossil fuels as their main target. And fossil fuels is what we need to run this advanced economy. They have nothing to replace it. Nothing. They can talk about batteries all they want. They can talk about electricity. How do we get electricity? Does electricity produce electricity? No. Something has to happen. We used to have these hydroelectric plants we were building. Well, under Obama, we were tearing them down. They don't like hydroelectric plants because it involves water. Rivers. Dams. So those don't count. You've got to get rid of that. Hurts the environment, they tell us. Hurts the environment. And then there's the, uh, the batteries. Lots of the material in the batteries, these lithium batteries that have to be stronger and stronger and so forth, come from China and Africa. And China controls most of it, and he controls a lot of it from Africa, thanks to somebody named Biden. I think his name's Hunter Biden. But that's not a scandal. No, no, no. Look somewhere else. Okay. Electric cars are extremely expensive. And you don't have these plug-in things all the time. I mean, think about it. You've got California, the biggest population in the country, even though it's losing citizens. They have brownouts and blackouts now almost every year. What are they going to do when everybody's sticking the plug for their car into some electrical device to get electricity? Think they'll have more brownouts and blackouts? I think they might, don't you folks? Yeah, I think so. The reason the price of fuel is up is simple. Because of Joe Biden and his administration, because of the Democrat Party. It's that simple. The reason we have inflation is because of Joe Biden and the Democrat Party. It's that simple. It really is. Go ahead. 
Jobs building electric cars like the one I drove at the GM Detroit, the GM factory in Detroit last week. Oh, wow. That makes all the... He drove an electric car from... Last week. He drove it 12 feet, the big dummy. Go ahead. Thousands of folks who brought one of those electric cars, they're going to save 800 to $1,000 in fuel costs this year. Yeah, but they're going to spend $25,000 more for the vehicle. And then if everybody's using electricity, guess what happens to electricity? Greater, greater, greater demand, and the supply cannot keep up. What about the electrical grid? Are we going to protect that too? Well, think about that another day. Go ahead. And we're going to put those Go savings... Ahead. Shut up, the- you idiot. Don't worry about food shortages. You see the price of food going up? I followed up again today. I actually drove over. I shouldn't even mention the place. Well, I did. To a place I like a lot. Roy Rogers. I used to like the roast beef sandwiches. What do you mean used to? I would still eat them, but I don't do it now. And I went up and I asked, what is the cost of a regular roast beef sandwich? I had looked at the menu, but then I said, all right, I got to do this research for the audience. What is the cost? Just a regular roast beef sandwich and a medium soda in Leesburg, Virginia. With tax, $9.49. I'll bet it's more where you guys are, Mr. Producer. New York? Mr. Call Screener, North Jersey, it's more there. $9.49, so I'm thinking to myself, okay, you have a family of four, you go to the drive-thru, it could be any of these places, $9.49 times four, you're paying $40 in the drive-thru because of the price of meat. You know, and it's not the meat producers are hoarding meat. For God's sakes. People want to sell stuff. They don't want to hoard it. The government doesn't care about selling stuff. They don't care about imposing their will. That's what's going on. That's why the price of everything's going through the roof. And you need fossil fuels to produce almost everything, including fertilizer. What do you think tractors run on? What do you think harvesting machines run on? What do you think... Trucks run on. What do you think plastic? Where do you think plastic comes from? How do you think there's lights in grocery stores? And I can go on and on and on. It's fossil fuels. What are you going to do? All wear, walk around with those little propeller caps on your head? I don't know what's going to happen. Neither do they. They have no answer other than climate change, climate change, climate change. If it were left to Biden and Talib and Pelosi and the rest, we'd all starve to death. Nobody says it better than Mark Levin. I'll go with what Mark Levin said, because nobody could say it better. Call in now at 877-381-3811. Correction, it's not 50 million gallons, it's 50 million barrels. That's what I thought. And then I looked it up. You know, 50 million barrels, America, lasts for the country in terms of its use of oil. It's less than three days. I saw it's less than a week, less than three days. So it's that, in that ballpark. So it's not going to do a thing. Maybe when you're driving, 
for Thanksgiving or something, you'll see it come down a few pennies, but that's it. Then it's going to go right back. It does nothing. That's how cynical Biden and his administration are, really grotesque, quite frankly, playing with the American people, playing with their livelihoods. You're blowing money for no reason whatsoever, none. None. These extra costs, this is what we call the tax that the Democrats place on this economy every time they can. These taxes that they're placing on you are absolutely unnecessary. They don't improve your lives. They do quite the opposite. And I don't know how people on fixed incomes can go through a drive-thru and spend 40 bucks every time. And then they fill up a car, have to pay another 60, 65 bucks. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do it. And they talk about, well, you need more government programs, and it's the fault of the oil companies. And the Republicans in bed with the oil companies. As I said before, when the Republicans had the White House under Trump and had the Senate, the price of fuel was very low. So under the Republicans and, quote-unquote, the oil companies, you had a low cost of fuel and you had energy independence. And you didn't have inflation. So who's in bed with what? Nicole Hannah-Jones on Democracy Now!, which is a radical left operation, uh, really spewing her, her propaganda, her hate America propaganda. She is not a historian in any respect. And I want you to understand that what she's talking about, this 1619, the book, she has a new book out, 1619. This stuff's being pushed throughout colleges and universities and education uh, throughout the country. You know, my, my book, American Marxism, I don't have the benefit of colleges and universities buying tens of thousands of copies of my book to hand out and use as a textbook to teach in classrooms. I don't have the benefit of tax dollars being used by local school districts to buy these radical kook books and pass them out to their teachers and their students. I have you, the American people. About 1.2 million of you have purchased copies of this book in various forms. No. Wouldn't it be wonderful, though, if these books were in the schools? The effect that it would have? Look at the effect it's already had in the country. Completely ignored by most conservative media. Completely ignored by most conservative pundits, radio hosts. Completely ignored by most conservative websites. Completely ignored by Capitol Hill. That's good. It's not bad. It's good. And yet 1.2 million in sales... I don't use Twitter. I don't use Facebook. I told them to screw off about, what, a year or two ago, Mr. Producer? Yes. It's just you and me, the people. And then after the election, wow, look at what the parents are doing. Yeah, look at it. Wow. We should be running on bread and butter. No, you should be running against the mob, the Marxist mob. Nicole Hannah-Jones included Listen to this. Cut 11. Go. Uh, We have an article uh, that talks about the Second Amendment. That's by Dr. Carol Anderson in Out of Emory and really argues that our obsession with guns. We are. are, What what does an obsession with guns mean? What does that mean? These phrases that the Marxists use. We have an obsession with guns. You know, as an obsession with guns, the communist Chinese government, the Cuban communist government, the communist Venezuelan government, the police states have obsession with guns. They have the obsession with taking them from you 
so they can overpower you with their own guns. Now, Nicole Hannah-Jones is a moron. The police are systemically racist because they're there to keep in place this white-dominant society, which we know is unjust in every respect. Meanwhile, you are obsessed with guns, so you need to be disarmed. And it all goes back to slavery. You go, what? Oh, yes, indeed. That's how much she knows about the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. All goes back to slavery. Did you read the Second Amendment? Nicole Hannah-Jones, does it say only white people and slave owners have a right to guns? Is that what it says? Cut 11, go. We have more guns than almost any society um, in the world. Who cares? What does that have to do with anything? What does that have to do with anything? Why does it matter? Are we supposed to compare ourselves to France? Who cares what France has? How about Germany? Should we compare ourselves to Germany? Remember a time when Germany had more guns than everybody else, Nicole? Do you remember that time? Oh, yes, yes. We also have more free speech than any country on the face of the earth, or at least we did before the Democrats took over. Is that a problem? We had more due process and equal protection? Oh, yeah. More freedom when it comes to our economic system? All kinds of stuff, because America's different. And if you'd bother to read some of the great philosophers who informed our founders and our framers, like John Locke, you would understand that America was different from all other countries, Locke explained. Why? Because it was a clean slate. It didn't have the history of feudalism and monarchy. It didn't have the history of pogroms and all the rest of it. It's a clean slate. Because Locke was specifically asked when he wrote his second treatise on government, brilliant, brilliant, influenced the revolutionaries. Maybe if she'd stop reading Marx and start paying attention to our actual history. He said, he was challenged, where, where, where does this exist, this land that you talk about? America, he says. It's America. Go ahead have the highest rates of gun violence and that is also the highest rate of gun violence that's in our inner cities she won't mention that the highest rate of killings is young black men killing young black men that's not something she wants to confront or help address and I view this as the greatest civil rights issue of our time along with school choice but Nicole Hannah-Jones doesn't talk about that because it doesn't involve the white dominant society screwing everybody. Go ahead. ...of slavery, that the Second Amendment, while we like to think of it uh, as being um, allowing citizens to form militias to ward off government tyranny, it also was allowing them to form militias to suppress slave rebellions because enslaved but people... But it's, it's, it's the right to bear arms. And so bad people can use it for bad reasons, good people can use it for good reasons, like protecting themselves, like fighting people who supported slavery. So the, 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 the purpose of the Second Amendment had nothing whatsoever to do with slavery. Nothing. Even back then, the more populated northern states or colonies rejected slavery. 
There were pockets of it, don't get me wrong, but they rejected it. So why would they agree to a constitutional amendment, because the first ten amendments came later, the Bill of Rights? Because slave owners wanted it? Now listen to her incoherence. She's utterly illiterate when it comes to this topic. She's pushed by Marxist agenda and her hate for this country. And I guess the quote-unquote white dominant society. Go ahead. Constantly rebelling. And it looks at why uh, someone like um, Philando Castile in Minneapolis, who is a legal gun carrier, can be killed for carrying a gun and whether or not black people really do have a right to bear arms. He could be killed for carrying a gun. You give us one example. There's a lot of people who are killed for carrying guns and using guns. They're a weapon that can do that sort of thing. So you take one example. And by the way, this is CRT, critical race theory. Critical race theory is based on examples and theoretical arguments or current events it's not scholarship so there she goes because she's a crt activist philando castile in minneapolis illegal gun carrier what about kyle rittenhouse who was a legal gun owner yes he was excuse me holder legal gun carrier he was a legal gun carrier even at the age of 17 But apparently he wasn't allowed to. I would love to debate Nicole Hannah-Jones. It'll never happen. I would love to debate Bernie Sanders. It'll never happen. It'll never happen. Not because of me. Cut 12, go. So every single essay in the book really makes these modern connections. And what we hope is uh, slavery has influenced our society in so many ways, but we've really invisibilized that. We, we've lost that. It always that amazes me when I read these books, in writing my book, these professors, these pseudo-scholars, Nicole, Hannah-Jones, how they create these words, or they use words that are invisibilized. You're all running to Google. I'm sure it's a word. I'm sure she Googled it herself. But we're invisibilizing slavery. What are we supposed to do every day? Now, there's probably well over majority of the Americans here whose ancestors weren't even here during slavery, including a lot of black people from all parts of the world, including the Latino community, big percentage of it. What, I mean, you try to go on with your lives, you try and respect people, you live by the golden rule, which is the greatest rule, You treat people with respect regardless of their backgrounds or their religion or their race. You want to get along. And in this society, this this society has been known for this. The most diverse society in the world, yet we were not balkanized. We were not tribalized. You see, Nicole Hannah-Jones and others, that's what they want to do to us. They want to balkanize and tribalize us and completely undercut the greatness and founding of this nation. If this nation was so horrid, <clears throat> not only would people not be pouring over the border by the millions, people would be pouring over the border by the millions in the other direction. I'm just serious. Where would Nicole Hannah-Jones go that's better than the United States of America? Nowhere. Nowhere can a phony historian who has no, deg- no, no uh, advanced degree in history pushing this bullcrap become wealthy and tenured and popularized um, nowhere else on the face of the earth. Go ahead. 
understanding. And what I argue um, for the project is the narrative of 1776 does not explain uh, the insurrection on the Capitol in January. I, I don't know what that means. It does not explain the insurrection on the Capitol in January. The insurrection on the Capitol in January. She's the one leading an insurrection. She's not alone. Pelosi. Cheney. The whole critical race theory movement. The whole degrowth movement. The whole disarm movement. They're the ones leading an insurrection. If insurrections don't have to involve weaponry, you know, taking over in one swoop a country and so forth, the Democrat Party and these American Marxists, they are making a hell of a lot of progress in their insurrection. Nicole Hannah-Jones, if we were in sober times and serious times, would be viewed as a fringe, unhinged provocateur. I'll be right back. Jimmy Kimmel is a well-known hemorrhoid. He's on the hemorrhoid. He's in a hemorrhoid of uh, of late-night comedy. A bleeding buffoon, Jimmy Kimmel is. Now, Jimmy Kimmel's very upset that I interviewed President Trump and didn't attack him. That we had a wonderful discussion about him, his presidency, his book. Jimmy Kimmel doesn't read books, so I thought he might like this book. It has pictures in it, but no. Jimmy Kimmel, you see, is a is an activist. Did he play basketball against Senator Cruz and Cruz beat him? I believe so. You think if he and I were in a UFC ring, you think I could beat the crap out of this guy? I'd be willing to do it. For charity, of course. Just one five-minute round, I will beat the crap out of this guy. I'm just imagining, just daydreaming, Mr. Tough Guy. But you know what? Jimmy Kimmel has done things that I've never done. I don't know the obsession with Democrats and blackface. We have a governor in Virginia who went blackface. We have an attorney general around for re-election. He went blackface. These are white guys, of course. But Jimmy Kimmel and, and Joy Behar both went blackface. In this Daily Caller piece, you can see Jimmy Kimmel shaved his head or put one of those skin coverings on his head and had not only his face but his chest and his arms painted black. And as they remind us at the Daily Call, comedians Jimmy Kimmel and Joy Behar both worn blackface in the past. They both wore blackface in the past. And yet they're embraced because of their ideology. Over at Breitbart, um, John Nolte, a few years back, pointed out that Joy Reid is a big marquee star for NBC and is a bigot, anti-Semite, and a racist that she posted grotesque things, such as stop being nice to Jews, J-O-O-O-O-O-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z. Oh, yeah. You know, the Mahoud Abedebejan has a point about 
the Jews, yes. And more about straight people. Gays are icky. Things of this sort. I'm going to go ahead and out a straight man who's married to a woman as gay. I don't know. The piece is up there. You can read it yourself. But she was promoted too. Don't vote for Charlie Chris. He called her Miss Charlie. I can go on and on and on. I've never done any of that. I'll be right back. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Where else would I be? But I won't be here tomorrow, or Thanksgiving, or Friday. We have our buddy Larry O'Connor tomorrow. We have a great best of Thursday. And Friday we have our buddy uh, Brian Mutt. And I'm back on Monday. So you're in good hands with Mark State. You can read all about Joy Reid at Breitbart. Uh, you can Google that. Nolte, nine indefensible things uh, that she has said. And then lied to cover it up, she and NBC. You can read all about uh, Jimmy Blackface Kimball. And uh, what's the other one? Joy, Blackface, Behar. They're frauds, they're phonies, they're fakes, they're hypocrites. And that's why they have no ratings. Well, I have to tell you something. I agree with something Al Sharpton said. I know. Once in a lifetime. All this stealing Louis Vuitton bags and so forth, the mobs now, uh, because of these prosecutors, because they've undermined the cops because you're not allowed to defend property anymore, or even yourself. Al Sharpton, of all people, cut 14, go. That kind of politics is what is going to resonate, because at one level, you want criminal justice to be criminal justice, but you do not want to have this kind of, of bedlam and lawlessness. First of all, no one has fought for uh, giving people reform in terms of how they're sentenced to bail more than I have. But a guy or a lady stealing a Louis Vuitton bag is not somebody that needs social uplifting. This is somebody that is really causing us more of a problem. These latte liberals that justify this, this has nothing to do with poverty. This has nothing to do with you couldn't get a job. These are people that can go back in the neighborhoods where Louis Vuitton bag is not unusual. And they can just fit in, and, and many of it for gag. And they hurt the cause of those that want criminal justice reform. So at one level, they hurt the stone. At another level, they hurt us that are trying to get a break in the criminal justice system, which is why I agree with All you. All right, very good. Pretty good from Al Sharpton, and actually relatively coherent, I thought, Mr. Producer. But he's right, isn't he? Then there's Kwame Brown, former NBA player for a number of teams. And I saw this. The Daily Call, I said, this guy, he's right on. He's right on. So he won't get to be a host on MSNBC or CNN. Cut 16, go. I just don't get it. Our focus should be on Ahmaud Arbery. It shouldn't be on Kyle Rittenhouse. 
That, to me, in my opinion, looked like self-defense. The courts found it as self-defense. The only, the only bad thing is that he had to sit in jail for so long because they made something political that had that wasn't or shouldn't have been political. If you're gonna get a boy the gun charge, give him the damn gun charge, or let the boy out. I'm sure a 17-year-old walking around with a shotgun would have been a misdemeanor, uh, which would have been probation. He could have been home eating Fruit Loops or whatever the hell he eat. <laughs> but instead of that, we want to make it like we want to tie it in. We want to tie it into something black. We want to tie it into something bigger, so we can have people come out and march and get checks off a little teenager's back. And, and that, to me, is corny. Trying to get money off of teenagers, trying to use the situation for a political gain, to me, that's corny. Everything ain't political, okay? A bunch of racist You know what it is? A bunch of people getting paid to push this racist That's all it is. People ain't got no lane. They ain't really don't got nothing to say. The only thing they get paid off of is talking about how racist it is. All right, he's talking to you, Joy. And Joy, he's talking to you, Kimmel. He's talking to the whole lineup at MSNBC and CNN, to the pages of the New York Times and the Washington Post. He's saying, how the hell is this racist? Some kid's defending himself and found innocent. Which is what we're all saying. Go ahead. Good houses, good everything, telling you how bad it is. It don't look bad. You driving a Benz, you got flying all over the world, you speaking engagements, you got black tires and security. How you so bad off? I'm trying to figure out. I saw Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, I saw got uh, Roland Martin, them got black tire security, them got black SUV, them riding in style. <laughs> they stayed at the hotel I stayed at. They was on the island. They over there living good and pimping. So how in the f*** is it so bad? Tell me how to get it like you got it. Tell me how to get some of them black Escalade securities that you some bitch pulled up there with while I'm pulling up with my brother. And so he's answering in effect Joy Behar, a latte liberal by his terms. Stupid moron by mine. And Sonny Hostin. Another fraud. He's talking to them. You go back to your neighborhoods and your homes, and you got you got money, you got drivers, you got you got all kinds of things. What do you mean that this was racist? Some teenager defending himself, and really, I would add against three white guys. You know, says you're pimping this stuff. He's right on. Cut eighteen. Go. Sonny, if he were black, would he be free now? No, he wouldn't be alive now. Well, why are we asking Sonny? Why would she know? How would Sonny know that if Kyle Rittenhouse were black, would he be free now? No. But it doesn't matter. As Kwame says, I'd love to meet that guy, Mr. Producer. I would love to meet that guy. He's really salt of the earth. You can tell. Kwame Brown. Go ahead. And why are they applauding that? They got their clapping seals in the audience. If he were black, would he be free now? No, he wouldn't be alive now. Yay! Yay! What are you applauding? 
You know what happens? They have an applause sign. So they're applauding. They're clapping seals. Go ahead. I don't. I, I disagree that it was a, a cut and, and a cut and dried case of self defense. And why do I care if you disagree or not? You're on one of the stupidest shows ever developed by human beings. The View. The View from where? How are these people chosen? Certainly not by their smarts. They're yentas. Yentas. Look it up. They're yentas. It's like over at a dinner table. There they are. They're there. They gossip. Ramble. You know. Go ahead. Think that when you certainly go... Ah, shut up, uh, you idiot. May I say, with all due respect, we have a very, very fascinating guest coming up. I think. Very fascinating to me. And uh, he's written a book on Watergate. And he's written a book on Watergate. And this is a man who was very anti-Nixon. I believe he served in his administration. And kind of turned on Nixon. But then he found something out. And he said, wait a minute. This is wrong, what took place. We don't have all the facts, and now I have all the facts. The man's name is Jeff Shepard. The Nixon conspiracy, Watergate, and the plot to remove the president. Now, please, I want you to listen to this man. Because I guarantee he's not going to get to be on any of these other network shows. I'm probably the first major program he's going to be on, so you'll see all the uh, backbenchers will get all excited. But that said, I went to hear what this man had to say. I don't know him. I haven't questioned him, and I'm going to now. We'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Well, I, I read a excerpt from this book, The Nixon Conspiracy, Watergate, and the Plot to Remove the President, and then I read a piece, I think it was in the uh, New York Post, it was absolutely fascinating to me, and very credible. Our guest is uh, Jeff Shepard, he worked in the Nixon White House for five years, he was also involved in defending the President for a period of time, then he concluded that the President really had done all the things he was accused of in Watergate, and now... He's done an enormous amount of research, and he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jeff Shepard, how are you, sir? I'm fine, thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me on your show. Well, it's a pleasure. Um, tell us very briefly about your background, and then what caused you to wonder if, in fact, the Watergate story was accurate? Because you're not some kind of a kook or anything. You're a serious person. Well, that's very kind of you. Uh, I uh, grew up in Southern California, and went to Whittier College, which is where Dick Nixon went. Yeah. And then I won a scholarship to Harvard Law School. And coming out of Harvard Law School, I was chosen as a White House fellow. I was one of the youngest White House fellows ever chosen. And at the end of my fellowship year, I joined Nixon's staff, and I stayed for five years. I was a member of the original domestic council, and I did policy work on the law and order issue. Uh, and then when Watergate hit, uh, I asked for a seat at the table, I, and I became deputy uh, counsel to the uh, Watergate defense. I transcribed the tapes. I ran the document rooms holding the seized files. 
and I staffed the presidential counselors on uh, on Watergate. And uh, as your listeners know, it ended rather badly. So uh, you, you from the legal side, you were involved in the teeth of this. You weren't just an observer. You were you were active in this process. Oh, absolutely. I I I wasn't senior. But I was in the room uh, for every major decision. I mean, I, I was Fred Bazaar was the president's oh, yeah. lead inside lawyer, and I was his deputy. All right. So you you decide that the president's guilty, right? Well, what happened right at the end, and it was a huge surprise, Mark. We were all set to defend the president, uh, uh, and, and what he did after he learned there was a cover up from he learned from John Dean. And then out of nowhere, this tape appeared uh, that suggested the president was involved in the cover-up from six days after the original break-in back in June of 1972. Uh, and and it, it was such a surprise. Everybody turned on the president, and, and it, you know, it looked like he'd been leading his lawyers on. Uh, uh, and I was just as disgusted as everybody else. Uh, but then... Over time, uh, I started doing some research because of that particular tape. It's called The Smoking Gun. Mm -hmm. I was the third person to hear it. I prepared the official transcript. I named it The Smoking Gun. You're the guy officially, quote-unquote, who named it The Smoking Gun. I just want everyone to know that. Go ahead. Oh, no, I am. There's no question. In fact, uh, in Woodward's book called The Final Days, he's trying to trace down where the name came from and, and... he gets a an assistant in the speechwriters unit to say the earliest she heard the phrase was from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean I didn't I didn't talk to Woodward I don't talk to the enemy right but uh, but it was it was my uh, uh, my characterization and then it turned out we were wrong uh, it wasn't a smoking gun and then over time as I was doing research on the special prosecutor's files. I rebuilt the case uh, for the president, and I turned around completely. Uh, and that's basically what the book does. It lays out everything we know after 50 years of disclosures. But I want to jump in really, here because cause we have a limited time. It wasn't just, well, I read it and I turned around. You had a fight for documents. You had a fight for information. Oh, yeah. uh, oh, finally, yeah. this stuff starts coming out. And what do you learn about the roadmap? What do you learn about the prosecutor's office and the judges? What do you learn as you're going through this? Well, uh, uh, the, the, the short summary is Nixon was driven from office by a secret cabal of vindictive judges and partisan prosecutors and uh, uh, cooperating Hill staff. Uh, but what really happened is that the four top prosecutors took their records with them when they left office. So you, you, the National Archives is supposed to have all the files, but they didn't have them. And they grad, they only surfaced within the last eight years uh, four caches of documents from four of the top prosecutors. Uh, and then I got the roadmap unsealed. The roadmap for your, your listeners' education was the secret grand jury testimony that the prosecutors said nailed Nixon, proved he was personally involved in the cover-up. But since it was grand jury evidence, it was conveyed to the the House uh, Impeachment Committee, the House Judiciary Committee, in secret, and we never saw it. We never knew 
what they were accusing Nixon of having done. So we were we were uh, uh, boxing in the dark. I got that unsealed in 2018. It had been secret for 45 years, and that's what the book is about. The book says, look, look at what they did. Look at what they said in secret. They couldn't prove it, Mark. They made up facts. All right, let me if, break off a piece of this. Let me break off a piece. Okay. And I'd like to carry okay. over the break, too, if I might, uh, Jeff. Sure, sure. And it's this. Did Nixon lead a cover-up? Did he encourage them to raise hush money? What was that all about? No. Uh, uh, he wasn't directly involved in any of that. Hush money was paid. But what's intriguing about it is that it was paid for legal fees and for humanitarian aid, and it was stipulated at the, at the prosecution for the cover-up that every dime was paid against an invoice for legal fees or humanitarian aid. Uh, uh, but the prosecutor said if, if one dime was also paid to buy silence from the Watergate burglars, then there's a cover-up. And John Dean, by this time, the president's lawyer, had switched sides. And he said, yes, that was the reason that we were paying the money. But Nixon wasn't involved in raising the money or in paying the money. That was, that was done at a much, much lower level. And the most intriguing thing, one of the other documents I uncovered from the prosecutors on files, they say for the first month that John Dean came in looking for immunity, looking to switch sides, he never, he never called it hush money. He said, yes, there was money being paid, but he didn't say it was buying silence. And, and as, as, as you know, if a witness changes their testimony in the hands of the prosecutor, that must be disclosed to we're, the We're going to take a break. We have a hard break. But the point is, you're saying Nixon never directed the raising of hush money. He wasn't involved in nope. the raising of hush money. It was raised nope. with him, but he was never involved in it. We're going to have more of Jeff Shepard and his great book when we return. Mark Levin, the thunder on the right. Call in now, 877-381-3811. The book is The Nixon Conspiracy, Watergate, and the Plot to Remove the President. It's on Amazon. This is a, a, a killer book by Jeff Shepard. You can get it on my social sites. You can go directly to Amazon or a retail store. I don't know if they'll carry them, but hopefully they will. You say here in your press release, Jeff, that, uh, uh, that the prosecutors were basically uh, dishonest and that they worked uh, they had a series of secret meetings with Watergate judges, improperly enabling yeah, a vindictive just, chief judge, I guess Sirica, uh, to well, name himself. Hold on, let me finish with the question, please. To name himself to preside at the trial. What did you mean by that? Well, uh, there are indications they had at least a dozen secret meetings with Judge Sirica to work out details in advance of the trial. Uh, there are four memos that I that I have uncovered where they describe what they did in the meetings. And one of them, uh, because in order for Sirica to be able to name himself, he was chief judge, so he had the authority, but the prosecutors had to request special handling to take the case out of the normal rotation of judges. 
So Leon Jaworski, the special prosecutor, went to Sirica's chambers on the morning of the indictment, and they rehearsed how they would do it. You say this, then I'll say that, then you say this. We'll hand down the indictment. I'll call for special handling. And then we'll take up this document called the roadmap, uh, which is, which are the accusations, the secret accusations against Nixon. So what, 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 the, what, the, what the documents show, and this is all based on documents that are publicly available now. I, I uncovered them, but they're publicly available. Secret meetings with the judges, suppression of evidence that was helpful to the defense, and outright falsehoods and misrepresentations made to grand jurors and to congressional staff alike with regard to the president's personal involvement. Now, that's all laid out in the book. And, of course, some of it's legalese, and, and, and you got to take that with a grain of salt. But people realize you can't have secret meetings with a judge. That's just that that is an out and out denial of a fair trial. And we you know, we have guarantees of due process in the Fifth and Sixth Amendments to our Constitution that that make prosecutors play fair. They have incredible powers, but they also have rules of conduct. And what I learned most recently, this is just last month, Mark. I mean, the book is now out. But what I learned after the book was at the publisher uh, is that there's a special unit within the Department of Justice whose sole mission is to investigate allegations of wrongdoing by Justice Department lawyers. It's called the, it's not the Inspector General. It's called the Office of Professional Responsibility. And I filed a formal complaint against what the special prosecutors did 50 years ago. But then I added, don't think that it's too long. There's no statute of limitations on ethical violations. And these same very lawyers who cheated took their files with them that precluded any knowledge or understanding of their wrongdoing. Mm. And so the Department of Justice, these are career lawyers at the Department of Justice, are under a current obligation to weigh all the stuff that's disclosed in my book. This is quite remarkable. You're basically saying Nixon had nothing to do with the cover-up. Is that right? Nixon didn't know about the cover-up. Both President Nixon and John Dean, who really ran the cover-up, have maintained consistently that he didn't know anything until the meeting of, of Wednesday, March 21st, 1973, when John Dean goes in and says there's a cancer on the presidency, uh, a lot of stuff has been going on, and you're going to have to make decisions, and you don't know what's been going on. And he describes that people have been uh, uh, perjuring themselves and that money has changed hands, that that uh, Howard Hunt is asking for $120,000, 70 is legal fees, and they, they were paying the legal fees. But 50000 is because he's going to be let off to jail and he wants some walking around money for his family. Uh, and there's no way, I mean, what the way John Dean describes it, he says, that's just out-and-out out blackmail. And then he and the president talk about what they should do. And it's all on tape. Remember, I transcribed the tape, so I, I can go chapter and verse on what is said. 
the only decision at that meeting, first famous meeting, is we need to bring John Mitchell, the attorney general, former attorney general, down from New York and decide what to do. And, and Mitchell, comes, Mitchell comes down the next day, and, and there are more meetings of, of what to do. But what is so intriguing is that very night, that very Wednesday night, a payment is made to the Watergate burglars. So the prosecutor said, shoot, you know, the thing speaks for itself. Nixon learned at a meeting that ended at noon, and the payoff occurred at 10 o'clock that night. What other explanation could there be? And then they set about trying to herd their witnesses into all into uh, testifying that everything occurred in that 10-hour window on Wednesday afternoon, but they couldn't do it. They had a missing link in their chain of events, so they lied about it. And that's what I've uncovered with regard to the roadmap. It's it's just incredible. Now you. You, you, you don't get a situation where Nixon is absolutely exonerated, but Nixon did not do what the prosecutors accused him of doing. In that era, and this is a while back, Mark, this is 50 years ago, it was felt if you were going to deny the president his reelection, you had to prove personal involvement in a crime that was the equivalent of bribery or treason, which are mentioned in the Constitution. Not there was a conspiracy and John Dean broke the law, and Nixon was a part of the conspiracy, but Nixon himself, mm-hmm. had to, they had to catch him with his hand in the cookie jar, and the prosecutor said, we're up to it. We've got it. We can prove that he directed the payment of blackmail to Hunt that occurred that afternoon. Are these uh, people... Are these people... Uh... These four prosecutors you talk about, are they still alive? Um, one of them is still alive. Mm-hmm. The, the, uh, uh, the, the people who worked on the roadmap are still alive. Mm-hmm. But Leon Jaworski was the no, second he's gone. special prosecutor. Yeah. He took a, but he took a toot-load of memos with him. Mm-hmm. Archie Cox took his memos. Uh, Archie's top deputy, a guy named James Bornberg, who was really the power behind the throne, he took his files, and then the, the person who's still alive, who was counsel to the special prosecutors, kind of their personal staff, uh, a younger lawyer named Philip Lacavara, he took his files. Why does that name sound and familiar? The, well, he's a very prominent lawyer. Uh, uh, he uh, was president of the D.C. Bar Association. No, he right. was uh, general yeah. counsel of General Electric for Jack Welch. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, and he's a classy guy, mm-hmm. but I got to tell you, you read some of those things that he wrote, and you begin to wonder. Have you tried to contact him with these documents? No, I don't. I don't no. deal with the uh, former special prosecutors. Now, another gentleman that's still alive is one of the two lead lawyers in the cover-up trial, lead prosecutors, uh, Richard Benvenisti. Well, listen, I've dealt with him. He's he's a nasty dude. Uh, he is one of the most personally obnoxious people that exists. I agree with that. Uh, a, a terrible person. Is he still around? Uh, but Oh, yeah, he's still around. Yeah. Now, remember, I was the youngest lawyer on Nixon's staff, and I'm 77. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, they're, they're all a year or two around my age, those that are still around. <clears throat> the, um, 
I remember Ben Venista, who was counsel for the Democrats with Gene Lewis and others uh, during the D'Amato. He was counsel. He was counsel. That's right, an app scam. They they always used to bring him in as the hitman for them, the legal hitman. Yeah, I, 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 I think of him as a Democrat spear carrier. Well, let me ask you this. I assume the book was carefully reviewed from a legal perspective because you have some of these guys are litigious. It's nothing, nothing for them to file something. Uh, this is my third book. And it's based it's, on the record. They're all, on, they're all on Watergate. They're all based on, on documents that are publicly available. Uh, I've never been challenged on a single fact in the book. Well, their problem is this, Jeff. If they do, well... Discovery cuts both ways, doesn't it? Discovery cuts both ways. I I don't think they want to subject themselves to my discovery. Uh, You know, I'm... Other people's lives have moved on, Mark, Mm -hmm. and mine hasn't. Uh, I am so up on the dates and Mm -hmm. the events and the the context of these documents. And, you know, it's one thing to, to, to learn they had secret meetings, but what is so... what is so appalling is they wrote memos about their meetings. And, and, and I've got these memos. I guess you, they never thought anybody can't. would see them, did they? Well, uh, uh, we, have, we have strange memos on our side, too, on totally different subjects. Mm-hmm. Uh, people don't think of what might come out in 20 or 30 years. Mm-hmm. There are people in this administration, the Biden administration, there were people in the Trump administration mm-hmm. who were writing memos that will come out over time that will prove very, very embarrassing. It's, it's now, just, I, I've got to go, Jeff, but, but you can see, how about when you were watching what was being done to Trump by Adam Schiff and his ilk with this Russia collusion stuff and this Ukraine transcript, you must have been, you must have been thinking way back, said, oh, my God, they're setting this guy up. Well, it's 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 this deja vu all over again. Exactly. Uh, uh, it, it, once a once a, uh, a set of accusations becomes highly politicized, truth goes out the window, mm-hmm. and it becomes a movement, and nobody cares what the truth is. It's it's very discouraging. You know, you you talk about the rule of law, and you want evidence, and you want proof, and nobody cares. They just recite the talking points. And they come, they come to believe them just because they recite them. And the media, propaganda, They're they no just regurgitate. The media, they are no help whatsoever. They, there's, you know, you, you, uh, uh, it's almost impossible to sue the media, mm-hmm. and they'll do a sensational story one day, and then that will be treated as fact from then on. Uh, well, listen, that, we have to could, go. I could talk to you all day. This is fascinating. The book is fascinating. It's called The Nixon Conspiracy, Watergate and the Plot to Remove the President. Whether you're a Nixon fan or not is beside the point. He's explaining how our justice system can work in a very, very, uh, sometimes a corrupt way. And we've been seeing that more and more and more out in the open. Jeff Shepard, I want to thank you. Thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you, Mark. I enjoyed it very much. I, I hope sometime we can talk again. Uh, amen. Amen. You can get this book at uh, Amazon.com or my social sites or any, I assume, retailer. The Nixon Conspiracy, <clears throat> Watergate, and the Plot to Remove the President. It really does have a lot of overlay with what goes on today with these prosecutions. I'm not kidding. And I was involved in the Iran-Contra matter, defending a former Attorney General Meese. I saw how sleazy these people can be. 
and you saw it with both eyes in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Grab your copies of American Marxism on Amazon right now as fast as you can. We'll be right back. Mark in. Well, folks, I hope you have a magnificent Thanksgiving. I won't be here tomorrow. My buddy Larry O'Connor will be here. He's great. Obviously, Thursday, we have a fantastic best of. Friday, my buddy Brian Mudd will be here. Please don't forget to watch this coming Sunday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. I won't be here to remind you uh, my exclusive interview with the president. I know there's other interviews with the president now. That is President Trump. But this was the first... It aired at 11 p.m. Eastern Time Sunday, and it got a massive rating, a 1.7. That means almost 2 million people, I think, watched it at 11 p.m. at night on Sunday, Eastern Time. But we're going to run it at 8 p.m. Eastern Time this Sunday, and here is something I wanted to tell you. The discussion with the president and me went on for some time. So we've broken it into two programs, two parts. So you'll see the first part this Sunday and the second part the next Sunday. All right? I hope you'll DVR it if you can't watch it live. Um, Other people might mention it. I know uh, Jimmy Kimmel's been watching with bated breath. I should say bad breath in his case. That guy sits there. He eats like a pig. You see this guy? I mean, he's been accused of uh, all kinds of stuff. Uh, He's there with the black face. He's there mocking women. But he's different now, you know. He's all different now. He's a big radical left-wing kook who's not funny at all. He wasn't even funny when he was hanging out with Howard Stern. Remember that? I think that guy's a night show. Boy, the standards. There are no standards. Johnny Carson. That was a standard. And there are other greats. These guys are a joke, like all the other Democrats who destroy one culture or another. But look, as I said, I think Senator Cruz beat him in a basketball game. Whipped him, as a matter of fact. I know I could beat the crap out of this guy in a UFC with just one round. So all the left, oh, did Mark say he's going to beat up Jimmy Kimmel? No, I didn't say that. I said I could. I would never do such a thing. That face looks like it's already been beaten up. Ladies and gentlemen, have a magnificent Thanksgiving. Seriously, I can't wait to see you again on Monday. I'll be thinking about you. We'll be posting things. Grab your copies of American Marxism. Be safe, be well, and enjoy your family.